I was telling Matt before the service um, that I ran into a neighbor at the uh, farmer's market yesterday down at Pepper Place, and uh, she happened to be preaching this morning at St. Thomas. And I, I said, oh, so you're, you're going to preach Hebrews 13? And she's like, heck no, I'm, I'm doing the gospel. I'm like, well, I got stuck with Hebrews 13. This, this is a tough text that we're dealing with tonight. Um, so we're, we're going to sort of work through this carefully, and I'm going to do it in a bit of a circuitous way. I'm going to go back in Hebrews. I'm going to go ahead of Hebrews 13, 1 to 8. And then we'll sneak back into the, uh, our particular text and we'll end that way. So hopefully it will make some sense where we're going. Now, uh, you've been on a journey through Hebrews. And I, I love that you've done that continual kind of reading here um, on the, in the evening services. And I think that tonight is the last night in Hebrews. Next week it's Philemon. And so I think it's probably worth taking a bit of an aerial view now that you're at the end of this journey through the book of Hebrews. Um, it's an impressive book, isn't it? An impassioned letter uh, whose background remains a mystery to us. Origin in the second century said, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, only God knows. We don't know who wrote the book. We don't know, we don't know to whom the book is written. There's a lot about the book of Hebrews that's shrouded uh, in mystery. But what I do think we can tell from the content of the book of Hebrews is that the author believes that there's a storm of persecution that's brewing. In other words, this might be a group of Christians, quite possibly second-generation Christians that have grown apathetic in their faith. And the author to the Hebrews is wanting to remind them all through this letter that Jesus is worth it. He's worth what? He's worth everything even if this means suffering for His name. So, so the book of Hebrews can be understood as a manual for why Jesus is worth dying for. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's the heavenly pattern by which the entirety of Israel's ancient worship is fitted. He, um, in one of my favorite phrases in all the book of Hebrews, He's a fitting high priest. That word fitting. Why is He fitting? Because being fully God without remainder and without question, Jesus clothes Himself in humanity. He becomes fully a man, a human like you and like me. And in this humanity, again in the words of Hebrews, He learned obedience in the school of suffering. Now these phrases have massive implications about our understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ. He learned obedience in the school of suffering. Uh, Jesus goes to school. What kind of school? The school of being human kind of school. The school where suffering marks one's existence. He knew deprivation. Jesus knew insult. Um, He even breathed His last. He knew betrayal. He experienced the punishment of the innocent. And why would Jesus go through all of this? Why would the Son of God, the Creator of the world, the One who we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4, through is the very means by the power of His Word that the whole universe holds together. I don't know how to put that together in my mind. I doubt you do either. But on the atomic and subatomic level of human and material existence, the power of Jesus' Word is keeps the world from imploding on itself. That's Jesus. And this supreme and sufficient One 
went to school to learn obedience in the school of human suffering. Why? So that He could be a high priest fitting for you and for me. So that He could intercede for you and for me with knowledge. He remembers in the words of the psalmist that we're just dust. He reminds the Father by His mere presence in the throne room of God that He, Jesus, lived in full obedience under the hardship of human suffering and that He lived this life and that He died this death for you and for me. And in His role before the Father right now, which I know it's hard for us to even conceive of, but Jesus, fully God, fully man, right now. By the way, Jesus being a man, corpuscular, bodily, right now, before the Father, by the Spirit, your whole salvation depends on that. And there He is, fully God, fully man, not sitting idly in heaven, as Calvin tells us. And what is He doing not idly in heaven? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's reminding the Father that He's done it all for you. And He's done so in a way that's fitting because He learned suffering and obedience in the school of human suffering. So the author of the Hebrews is telling the readers of this letter, which happens to be you and me tonight, so these words sort of trickle down into our current moment. He's telling us that Jesus is worth living for, and maybe even more importantly, that He's worth dying for. Only this kind of Savior can produce these kinds of effects because He's sufficient, He's supreme, and He's better than anything that we can compare Him to. And the book ends, and the verses that we're looking at tonight, by summoning us to follow Jesus. The book ends by calling you and me into a certain mode of being. A kind of existence where, in the words of our prayer book, our lips and our lives praise Him. That's how Hebrews chapter 12 ends. If you have Hebrews 12 there, these are the last verses of Hebrews chapter 12 that lead us into our text tonight. It says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. End quote. So there's a call to boldness at the end of Hebrews, chapter 12. There's a call to a boldness of life because of our secure location in Christ's kingdom. You know, in Paul's language, our citizenship is already in heaven. You're already fully a member of that kingdom. Our identity, your identity, your selfhood, the way that we view our location both now and in the future is as members of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. A kingdom that the author of the Hebrews wants you to know, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be moved. All the language of Christian virtue that we're about to talk about, all of that is spoken of in our reading. It makes no sense apart from the prior talk about our secure location in the kingdom of Christ. Only a faith, in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, that sets its eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The one who generated our faith and the one who will see our faith all the way to the end. Only a faith like that can say, with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
What can mere mortals do to me? What a statement of faith. So Hebrews ends in chapter 13. If you see this here in verses 12, and this is not in our reading, so I'm sort of hopping out of it. But Hebrews ends with Jesus standing at the gate of the city, bidding us to follow Him, in the words of Hebrews chapter 13, outside the camp. Boy, what a heavy ending to a book. Jesus standing at the city gate, bidding us come with Him outside the camp. Why? Well, this is what the author says. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. Why outside the gate? The reference here is probably to the sacrifices on the Day of the Atonement that once sacrificed in the temple were brought outside the gate to then be finally consumed. And here's Jesus identifying Himself with that sacrificial refuse that's now outside of the city gates. The impurities are moved away from the city center to the realm outside of the gates. Jesus suffers there. And as uncomfortable as the next verses are, they are for me, Jesus stands there at the city gates and He bids us, He asks us to go with Him outside the camp in order to bear the stigma. In order to bear the reproach. Or the disgrace. Only those whose confidence is in the unshakable kingdom of God can by His grace go outside the gates with Jesus to bear disgrace, reproach, and a stigma with Him. Why? Because these people know, in the language of Hebrews, that the city that they dwell in now is not a lasting city. But we, like Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, and Sarah, and and Moses, and Rahab, and David, and Samuel, and all those people that the author of the Hebrews lists as people that the world was not worthy of, all of them knew that their current city was not their final place of residence. All of them were living in light of another time and another place. You know, this causes attention for you. It causes attention for me. Um, we're caught as Christians. You and I are caught as Christians in this tension between having an indigenous identity, I live here in Birmingham, Alabama, in the United States of America, and this pilgrim identity, where I am is not necessarily where I ultimately live. We're caught in that. Being in a place, but also recognizing that this place It's not our final place. And it's not the place that ultimately defines our existence. And by the way, I don't believe this is a tension that's easily solved or mitigated. Especially as you navigate your existence in the world and your sphere of family life and business life and civic life. This is a real tension that we live in. The tension between being indigenous and pilgrims both at the same time. And both fully. But the author of the Hebrews is encouraging us to think about how we measure our ultimate dreams and hopes in light of our pilgrim existence. Our Hebrews reading tonight encourages us to live our indigenous lives here in Birmingham, Alabama, and the United States of America, our earthly lives, in light of our pilgrim status, where our citizenship is already in another time and another place. 
In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, hold our hand and show us what that kingdom existence, what that pilgrim existence looks like in the indigenous realities of our lives. Can we look at them together? And I will blow through them. I know I'm on a, t- on a clock. All right. Verse 1. Keep loving one another <laughs> as brothers and sisters. Oh, there's probably a reference here to Psalm 133. It's a great psalm. It's a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm where the psalmist says, Oh, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. I'm not going to go into the details of that text, but there's some fun language that's going on there where I think the psalmist is saying how good and how pleasant it is for those who are already brothers and sisters, who are already unified in the community, to actually live into that which they already are. I think that's the call. Uh, If I can quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which makes you trendy and cool, I guess. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that Christian unity is not an ideal. It's already realized because of who we are in Jesus. We, We don't have to manufacture Christian unity and identity among brothers and sisters. Why? Because we have it fully and completely in Jesus. That is a given reality. And what Psalm 133 and Hebrews chapter 13 are calling us to is live into that which you already are. I've got my three boys here tonight. Are you listening? Um, Yeah. Um, And my wife's been away on a women's retreat all weekend. It's been kind of hellish around the house, to be honest with you. It hasn't been that bad. Um, But my wife's been away on the retreat. So it's just been the... And our, our boys fight. Fight a little bit, don't you? Get one another. Who's got the Kindle now? Armor. I mean, it, it can get rather. I mean, th- this is a kind of um, parenting move that's made where we say, "Hey, your brothers, um, act like it." Right. I think that's what's going on here in Psalm 133 in Hebrews chapter 13. We don't have to manufacture Christian unity. We're called to live into that which we already have in Jesus fully because of who we are in Him. Brotherly love. Christian unity. Look at the next phrase. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That verse scared me when I was a little boy. I remember being scared of that. Um, because the last thing I think I wanted to do was entertain an angel. I, I'm not really interested in that. This is probably a reference to what story? Can your Bible imagination begin to run as you think about what story this is probably referring to back in Genesis, namely 18, right? Here's Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre, and three visitors come, and they begin to show hospitality, and they cook cakes for them. And who are these visitors? Well, they're angels that are visiting with Abraham. It's a, it's a reminder. Hey, Abraham showed hospitality to these strangers. And by the way, he was showing hospitality to angels. And if you know the story even fuller, more so to God himself. I mean, this is God in the form of these three figures who are now here. It's a call to hospitality. At the core of an Old Testament system and understanding of justice, at its core, is care and concern for the alien sojourner in the land. In fact, the right to the land in the Old Testament was linked to the hospitality given to foreigners and strangers and the disaffected in their community. Be hospitable. What's the third one here? Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. I tell you, this is a real challenge. It's a challenge to me. 
I was thinking about this um, as I was thinking through this text of one aspect of our corporate worship on Sunday mornings that I'm so grateful for when we pray. Um, it's been a habit here for, I think, a couple of years now, maybe longer, but I don't think longer than two or three years, where we remember Christians who are suffering around the world. Have you noticed that part of our Sunday morning worship, for those of you who come on Sunday mornings? Um, remember those who are, in, uh, who are suffering in Aleppo, Syria today. Remember the Christians in Baghdad who are suffering for your name today. Remember the Coptic Christians in Egypt, Lord, who just lost how many of their brothers on that beach in Tripoli? I mean, this call to remember those around the world who are suffering for the gospel. I have to tell you, I'm not walk, driving around Birmingham thinking about suffering Christians in China all the time. I doubt you are either. But there's at least one time during the week, and I'm grateful for this, where I'm brought together corporately with men and women of the faith, and I'm reminded there are people suffering for Jesus' name in China and in the Sudan and in Egypt and all around the world, and they confess the same gospel that I confess and worship the same Lord. Do you notice the, 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 the language of being that the author is using here? Remember them because you're just like them. You're with them as if you're with them in prison. How can he say that? It's body language. When the toe is smashed in the body of Christ, the whole body feels it and feels the hurt. I became familiar this week. I'm embarrassed that I can't became familiar with it so lately, but the story of this young lady, Kyla, uh, Kayla Mueller, who, who died as a prisoner in ISIS in, I think, last year, but was a hostage since 2013, just watching her family grieve. Um, this young woman that went over to serve, and I don't understand completely her Christian identity, but this is a young woman going over to serve, and she's captured, and then she dies. And apparently, there's a, one of the prisoners said there was a, there's a moment um, when one of the captors said, um, look how strong she is. She is converted to Islam. And she says, no, I have not. And this journalist, I think he was a Dutch journalist, said, I couldn't believe she said it. I would have never said it myself. I mean, isn't it incredible? To remember those who are bound as if we're bound with them. And I, if you don't remember it all, and I, I will struggle too, I hope this, this is not a guilt thing, but it's an invitation when we pray together corporately to remember those around the world who suffer for the same gospel that has redeemed a you and, and me. And look at the next one. Okay, i got to finish. I'm not even going to do any more. I'm just do that and I'm going to land the plane. Uh... Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And then he goes on and he says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Marriage. Isn't it an amazingly fragile and resilient institution all at the same time? You know, I'm with the Reformers in not identifying marriage as a sacrament, but I would be very close to turning the corner on that. I mean, well, why? Because marriage, Paul tells us, is the very human institution that God originated for the purpose of demonstrating to the world what self-sacrificial love looked like. The kind of love that He shows for His Son. And here the author of the Hebrews is saying, protect marriage. Protect and honor the marriage bed. Honor it. Um, I, I would love to talk about this. and It's, it's a lecture, so I won't do it. But I'm in the middle of Rusty Reno's new book on um, Christians and society. And he talks in that book about the trickle-down effect of our non-judgmental, amoral culture from the cultural and intellectual elite. It's a fascinating read. 
Reno, he's the editor of First Things Magazine. And Reno says, while the elite enjoy the rhetoric of non-judgmentalism, the impact of that, those particular lack of moral norms have wreaked havoc on the poor. Something. I mean, genuine care for the poor, this, the lack of morality at the top has trickled down and wreaked havoc in realms and in societies and in cultures where they're marked by poverty. Marriage and marital norms, these things matter. And here, I was going to talk about greed and money, but you got off the hook tonight. No greed and money, right? So be greedy and, and, and that's fine. Um, can, I, can, I, can I let you hear these words from Ralph Wood? This is what he says. I will argue, in fact, that Scripture and tradition provide the church with a distinctive kind of existence. With unique ways of birthing and dying. Of becoming youthful and growing old. Of marrying and remaining single. Of celebrating and sacrificing. Of thinking and imagining of worshiping the true God and protesting against false gods, and that these distinctive beliefs and practices constitute the church's own culture. That's what the author of the Hebrews, I believe, is saying. The churchly existence, existence in the kingdom of Christ in this world, is its own culture. Or in the words of James Davidson Hunter, it's a call to faithful presence. Not for the sake of saving America something like that, but for the sake of embodying the hopes of the kingdom of God. Christians are members of a different people and an alternative culture. Why can we say this? Because Jesus, the one who prays for you now, the one who made your existence in His kingdom safe and secure that you have no need of fear, He stands at the city gates and He bids you to come with Him outside the gates to suffer a little while to bear His reproach and to witness to the reality that He is Lord and that He is King in the world. Amen.